Hi, I'm Reed Huberman, and I'm the lead pastor of Soma Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and this is our podcast. We hope it fills your heart with the love of Christ and fuels your day with hope. Here's today's message. But uh, I'm going to give you a quick pro tip for those of you who are single. For those of you who are not single, I'm just going to give you a little background information into how I met my wife. So, but for those of you who are single, ears open, pro tip, this is something you need to learn, all right? So... Um, I was, um, before we moved to um, Cincinnati area, my wife and I, uh, we both lived outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and so I have kind of a long history of traveling and speaking and, and doing different um, events here and there. And so I was speaking at a, um, at a service just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And one of my friends had come back into town and I was sitting down and I was talking with her and I said, hey, you need to come to the service tonight. I'm speaking. I feel really good about the message. And by the way, the message I was speaking was a message called Yes. And it was about not just saying yes to God's will, but also saying yes to the way in which God wants to do it. Can I get an amen from somebody? Because it's really easy to say yes to God until you're like, God's like, okay, you know, um, I'm going to save the world, but the way in which I'm going to do it is a cross. And then Peter's like, wait, 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 save the world, that's cool, cross thing, not so sure, Right? So, like, so saying yes to God is easy, but actually doing what he wants us to do a little bit more difficult. And so I was talking about saying yes to God's will and yes to God's way. And by the way, you'll, this, is the first, this is the story of how I first met my wife. So I always joke with people and say, so after I got done preaching that sermon, my wife said, yes, I'll marry you. Please marry me. Uh, but that's not actually what happened. So I'll tell you the real story. Um, so I'm preaching this sermon, and I'm really excited about it because I really feel like God's dealt with my heart about it. And... Um, and uh, so I'm speaking with my friend, and she says, well, I can't come tonight. And I said, oh, you're going to miss it. And she said, well, my friend is, uh, uh, and I are going to go out, and we're going to go hang out and spend some time together. I haven't seen her in a while. And I said, all right, answer two questions for me. First of all, is your friend hot? Second of all, does your friend have a lot of money? And I said, answer the second question first. And um, she laughed, of course. And I said, no, listen, I'm, I'm joking, of course. But, it, but, it, but I'd love it if you guys came. If not, cool, we'll see you, we'll see you sometime soon. So needless to say, she ended up coming that night. Um, so she walks through the door just about the time that I'm, service is about to start. I'm walking out the back of the sanctuary. They're coming in the front door. Um, I'm going out to duck out and get some water so that I don't have to run out in the middle of service because I can't speak. Um, and so we meet right there in the hallway. And of course, like all the movies, Movies you see, I cannot come up with anything clever to say except hi. So my voice sinks into my stomach, and I just say hi. I go get my water, and she walks past me, and they go into the service. So the service went well, all that good stuff. And of course, afterwards, you know, uh, the thing that you do is, uh, especially as a preacher, because preachers love to eat. I know you can't tell it from what I look like, but preachers love to eat. So anyway, I'm sitting, uh, we go out to eat afterwards, and I'm sitting, and, and fate would have it that we're at totally opposite ends of the table. I'm like, great. That guy taking my seat. Um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm looking for an opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, mosey my way around the table, not be too, like, aggressive or anything like that. Play it cool. You know, you got to play it cool. Um, and, and I'm looking for an opportunity to kind of make my way over to the side of the table. So finally, that guy leaves, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And I go over, and I sit um, in front of a beautiful little petite Mexican girl named Erica. And I do the Uncle Rico any of you guys ever seen Napoleon Dynamite? If you haven't, I'll show you what the Uncle Rico is. So I do this number. And you got to put your hands behind the biceps so that you push them out so that they take notice of it. So that's the Uncle Rico. 
So I do that number, and I just ask her some questions. I get to know her a little bit and talk with her, um, and I, I figure out that uh, her parents are originally from Mexico. She's from California, and I say, oh, I'm going out to California to continue my studies, and so we really hit it off, have a great conversation, and she knows I'm about to go to California, and I'm not even sure if I'm even going to come back. So I'm going out to get my bachelor's degree at a Christian college out there, and then she says five words that forever shaped the destiny of our relationship, and she said, we should keep in touch. And then I knew it was on like Donkey Kong from that moment. <laughs> we should keep in touch. Now, okay, so here's the pro tip for some of you ladies especially. Don't be too aggressive, but you got to throw a dog a bone every once in a while because men are mostly very dense in this portion of their, of their body. So you got to let them know a little bit that, that you, there's some interest whatsoever. Throw a dog a bone and give him a, a little bit of, you know, some bait to get hooked onto. And that's exactly what Erica did. She wasn't aggressive. She wasn't the initiator. But she just said, you know, we should keep in touch, which is exactly what we did. So long story short, and now we are married and have two beautiful kids. Kids, a two and a four year old who are back there probably destroying stuff. So uh, we'll make this relatively quick so the insurance bill doesn't come up too, too high. Um, but the reason I share that with you is because, sincerely, um, I believe those five words that my wife spoke did alter the course of our, of our relationship for sure and, and alter the course of our future. I truly believe that words have a powerful, powerful impact. So when I tell you that we have developed core values, what you should know about those core values is that there are seven sayings, if you will, if you want to call them that, um, seven things that we say here at Soma Church that are, that are absolutely indispensable to who we are because we believe that words create culture, just like God spoke the worlds into existence, if you believe that. He, he spoke, and it created the world, and, and so we believe that words have a powerful, powerful effect. Um, and so these seven things, we believe, create the culture here at Soma Church. And the very first one actually has a lot to do with words. I don't want to jump into it too, too much, but the, but the very first core value that we're going to be talking about today is one that we, we say it like this. And again, they're all sayings. They're all from the Bible. We believe that they're good for the culture here of our church, but we also develop them straight from the Bible because we believe that they're good universally for your life. And so the first one is this, is we don't wear Saul's armor. We don't wear Saul's armor. Now, what do we mean when we say that we do not wear Saul's armor? What we mean is that, that we believe that, that the word of God is true, okay? What we are saying when we're saying we don't wear Saul's armor, we're saying we are biblical. We are biblical, okay? So we, we, we don't want to just be a modern church. We don't want to just be a new church. We are that, but we also want to be more than that. We also want to be a biblical church. So I believe that the mode or the means by which you communicate the message should change. A new generation, new times, new opportunities, new technology, all of that helps us be able to craft um, and, and communicate the message of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that it is the only hope for mankind. All of that technology and stuff helps us change the way we communicate the message, but the message must never change. The message must remain the same. The same message that's 2,000 years old that we still proclaim today here at Soma Church must never change. We are a biblical church who upholds the truth and the reliability of the Bible. When we say we don't wear Saul's armor, that's what we mean. 
Now, let me just take an aside here, and I didn't plan this. This isn't in my notes. Can I just tell you that in our modern-day church that sometimes that escapes us? Um, because we've, we've become accustomed to a very commercialized version of church that, that whether you um, go into a service or not or you even hear the Bible anymore, sometimes isn't, isn't always, uh, it's not always present. And that may be okay to a certain extent, but the point is this, is that we believe that, that the Bible is powerful. I don't believe that my words are powerful completely, not entirely, not like God's word. Not like God's word. It has a, a power all of its own that's bigger and better than my power. I don't want to come to, you, uh, to, to give you a motivational speech today that may or may not work in your real life. I believe with all my heart, and I'm going to prove this too in just a little bit. So hang with me because maybe you don't believe this. But, but I, I'm going to try to share with you today why we believe that the Bible is true and the Bible is reliable. But before I do that, I want to I take a moment to, to go into the, to the story here um, that, uh, that really kind of illustrates this idea, we don't wear Saul's armor, so you know exactly what we're talking about. That's our cute way of using a Bible story to try to um, portray some very important uh, things about the Bible. And so if you've got a Bible, you can turn it on, you can turn in it, or you can look behind me. Uh, we're going to 1 Samuel 17. And for those of you who do read the Bible at any extent, you will know this is the chapter where David faces off with Goliath. This is that story that you heard probably when you were a kid and maybe you haven't read in a long time. Uh, but this is that story. So let me give you just a little bit of background here. So David was just anointed king. And all that means is just simply this, that he was uh, not like we have an election today, but he was uh, elected as king by the person that hears from God called a prophet. And so they said, hey, you're the next king. God spoke to me, and I want to tell you, you're going to be the next king. And David, of course, if you know the story, was nothing but a little shepherd boy. From obscurity to the palace, God chose a person who knew nothing about leading except leading a bunch of sheep. He was just a shepherd boy. But let me give you the pro tip here, too. The other thing he knew about was he knew about spending time in God's presence, and it prepared him for something powerful in his life. And so he's anointed the next king. And, and one of the very next tasks that David is asked to do is he's asked to go do, uh, maybe some of you know, it, but, it, but it may not be what you think. No, not, not to go to the, to the Emmys or to the Grammys or to the Academy Awards. He's not asked to go uh, rule in some court case. And he's not asked to go uh, figure out who's going to be his chief of staff. That's, none of that stuff is what he's asked to do. He's actually asked to go give milk and cheese to his brothers. And now, I'm, just, I'm putting myself in David's shoes because it's okay to be real with the Bible, right? So if I'm anointed the king like the ruler of everybody. And my dad comes to me and he says, hey, I need you to go run an errand for me, milk and cheese, go get it, son. I'm thinking to myself, Is he, are you talking to the king? Because <laughs> I don't know if you know me, but I'm the king. I don't do milk and cheese, dad. I'm the king now. You know, I may have done that in the past, but now I'm the king, uh, so no thanks. You go get me milk and cheese. That's what, that's what typically you would think that, that somebody would respond. But David didn't have that heart. David was, was given a menial, insignificant, small task. And because he had a heart to serve and to serve God, it turned into a platform 
for one of the greatest events of David's life. Today, we're talking thousands of years later about this little 17-year-old young man who faced off against a huge giant because he wasn't willing to look at a small, meaningless task as a small, meaningless task, but he was willing to do something that seemed small and meaningless in order to do something for somebody else. And so he steps out, and, and of course, he's getting milk and cheese for his brothers who are out there on a battlefield. And so he rides up, and he's coming. He's got the milk and cheese in his hand, and he's like, this is very weird. This doesn't look like a battle. All I see is two armies and then a big old dude that's yelling and making fun of God in the valley on the opposite side. And so nobody's fighting. All of the Israelites are deathly scared of this huge dude. You would be too. Um, so he comes to the battle line. He's like, brothers, what's going on here? Why, why is nobody fighting? This, are you hearing what this guy is saying about us and what he's saying about our God? Is, are we just going to sit back and let that happen? And his brothers, of course, uh, they wanted to be the next king, and so they're jealous. And so they say, oh, you, David, you big talker, you come here and you try to give us our milk and cheese. And, and finally, some of the people around them are starting to hear the commotion, and they're like, what's going on? And, and David says to the, to the group of people, he says, what's going to happen to the guy who takes on that dude that all of y'all are scared of? And he says, well, this this is what's going to happen. And so, uh, and so this is where we find our story here in 1 Samuel 17, 29. And it says this. And David said, what have I done now? And so he's talking to his brothers. He's like, what have I done? All I did is I came here and I was asking questions. And he says this, and this is going to be super important. He says, is there not a cause? Let me throw a little aside here too. Some, some people look, wait for causes to come to them. But, but I think great people in life are looking for causes wherever they are. And that's what David's saying. He's saying, is there not a cause? But actually, he's also saying something a little bit deeper because in the original Hebrew, this word, is there not a cause, that word cause literally means, is there not a word? Is there not a word? And we'll get to that here in just a moment. And we'll circle back to this after we uh, take a little bit of a journey because that's gonna come back to play here in a moment. And then this is what he says in verse 31. Or this is what it says of the story. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they repeated them to Saul, who is the king. And he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. So Saul, David says, hey, don't worry about it. I'll go fight him. I'll go do this thing. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this guy. He's been fighting since he was a youth. And he, and, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion and a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and delivered the lamb from that lion's mouth. Now you would think to yourself, dude, just let him have the lamb. It's a lion. Don't face him. But that's not what David did. And when it arose against me, I caught it and, and, I, and I, by its beard and I struck it and I killed it. And your servant has killed both a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this giant Philistine. And Saul said to David, well, David, well, go and the Lord be with you. Um, and I almost think it's facetious because he's like, okay, you seem pretty confident, 17-year-old boy. Go fight that giant if you want to. Um, by the way, don't let anybody diminish you based upon your age. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed them with a coat of mail. And, and so they, Saul's like, all right, 
I'll just do what we do for all warriors. I'm going to put this uh, armor on you. You can, you can put it on yourself, yada, yada, yada. And so David fastened his sword to his armor, and he all looks like a regular warrior. Um, and David fastened his sword, and this is verse 39. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. So this is where we get we don't wear Saul's armor. So again, Saul says, I'm going to do the best thing I know how to do, and I'm going to give you my armor, and I'm going to put it on you. By the way, I'm not totally sure that Saul wasn't doing that just so that he could get the credit for winning the battle because he could have put anybody's armor on him, but instead he put his armor on David. And of course, the battle's going to take place in a valley between two large hills, and so they wouldn't really be able to see who was fighting, but they would be able to see the armor. So maybe Saul's thinking to himself, well, maybe I can get a little bit of credit for what this person does, like all insecure leaders do. And, um, and so he, he tries to send him out like that, but David said, listen, I can't, I can't even walk in this stuff. This is not going to work for me. I, I'm not going to wear this armor out there because I, I'm not going to be able to accomplish anything. And so here's the thing. There's three things I want to talk about. First of all, David did not wear Saul's armor because he had a better weapon. David did not wear, wear Saul's armor because he had a better weapon. Now, it's said of, 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 so what he had, by the way, is he had a sling, which is basically not like a sling shot like this, but, but like a pouch and strings, and then you would stick a rock in those pouch and strings, and then you would, you would swirl that rock around like this, and, and, and then you would let that thing go, and, and the stone would fly. And you may think to yourself, well, he has a superior weapon. Uh, look at all the stuff that, that, that Goliath has. In fact, it goes into a list of all the things that Goliath has, and it's very similar to the things that Saul tried to put on David. But, but David, in a sense, says, hey, listen, you can try to put all this stuff on me, but it doesn't seem to be working for any of you guys because all you're doing is shaking in your boots, hanging out on a hillside. So let me do this my way. So David had a superior weapon. And you may think to yourself, a superior weapon, I'm not sure if a rock is superior to a sword, but it is because, because it's said of slingers back in those, those days that they would be able to sling that rock around at six to seven revolutions a minute. Uh, sorry, a second. <laughs> six to seven, that would be very slow. Six to seven resolutions a second. And so he's going really fast with this thing. And when it finally released from the pouch, it was said that it could go as fast as 60 to 100 miles an hour. And in fact, we know this about those kind of slings back in those days. There are tapestries and there are, are, are books back from the medieval period where there were professional slingers that would usually go against cavalry and, and, and foot soldiers. And it, and it was said that these guys could hit birds in mid-flight. So it would be the equivalent of, of throwing like a baseball um, close to 100 miles an hour with extreme accuracy. It would hit his target. Not to mention that um, the rocks that were there in the Valley of Elah where they were having that fight that day, the rocks there are made of barium sulfate, which is a rock that is two times the density of a regular stone. So an incredibly powerful weapon. So don't get, get twisted in your mind that this is just little David with, with, with no skill and no ability because he goes out there with a more powerful weapon and he says, hey, I'm going I'm to work smarter, not harder. Is that okay? It's still a lesson I'm trying to teach myself, by the way. There's another pro tip for you. It's one I learned from John Maxwell. Look, work smarter, not harder. So he said, listen, if I go up against this guy the way you want me to and I go mano a mano against this dude, it's not going to work out well for me. He's way bigger than I am. By the way, 6'9", 
is, is what the earliest texts tell us, that he was 6'9". Um, so a giant, giant dude. And he knew that he couldn't outfight him if he went through traditional means and did the thing that, 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 that everybody else always did. Uh, so he, he knew he needed something different. So he did have a superior weapon. The second thing is this, is that he also had a superior strategy. He had a superior strategy. Um, here's what I mean by that is that, um, again, you see this list of armor that, that Goliath has on him. Um, and one of the pieces of armor he has is something called greaves. Okay, so greaves would basically just go from your ankle up to your, up to your knee, but it would leave room for your knee so that you could bend your legs and so that you could walk and that kind of thing. But he's heavily armored otherwise. And it says that when, um, and that's going to come in, in, in handy here in just a minute, and it says when he releases that stone, that it hits Goliath straight in the forehead and that Goliath falls directly face forward. Now here's the issue with that is that if you hit somebody in the head, um, typically the response would be to fall backwards, correct? Like you wouldn't fall face forward, you would fall backwards, especially if this thing's coming at an extreme rate of acceleration. So why does it say that he fell forward? Well, actually, in the original Hebrew, the word for forehead is much like the word for grieves, and so there's many people, it's a minority opinion, but there's many people who think that David's strategy was not actually to hit this guy in the forehead, which, by the way, Goliath had a big helmet, and most helmets back in those days, research has shown and archaeology has shown, would cover their forehead, okay? So, so what David sees is he sees a kink in the armor. He sees that man's wisdom might have a little bit of a flaw to it. And so he says, I, I think that I've got a strategy or an advantage on this guy that I can take advantage of. And so what, I, what actually happens, I think, is that that stone releases from that sling and it goes directly into Goliath's knee. And so it knocks his legs out from under him and that's why he falls face forward. And you can see this in, in a couple of different studies that people have done research that the word for grieves, again, is very similar to the, to the Hebrew word for forehead. Very similar. So that's the idea, is that, that, that probably, and there was no word for grieves back then in the ancient Hebrew, so, so they probably used the same word to denote this idea that what is actually happening is that David has a superior strategy to the strategy of Saul, and that's what destroys this giant. But there's a caveat to all of the things I just said. There's always a but. A mentor of mine in college always said to me, be careful where you put your butt. So there's a but here. And the but here is this. Is that it's interesting when David talks to Saul, he says, he doesn't say that a sling or a strategy delivered me out of the hand of a bear or a lion. Oh, I hope you guys get this this morning. Because this will help you. This will help you when it matters most. He didn't say, because by the way, let me have another side here. Let me just say that God, I believe God created you to destroy giants, whatever they may be in your life. Whatever the issues you may be facing right now in your life, I want to try to help you find a strategy in all of this for taking on whatever you need to face in life. So, so he didn't say when he beat up the lion and the bear, he said, well, I had a sufficient strategy or a sufficient weapon, and that's how I beat them. No, he said, the Lord delivered me. Furthermore, he said, I'm not going to go against this guy with a sling or a strategy. He says, the Lord is going to deliver me, this giant, into my hands. And then when he finally stands before Goliath, 
And Goliath is taunting him. Oh, little boy, come to me with sticks and la, 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 la. And, and David says, you may come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Not a sling and not a strategy. I think all of that's very important. Because ultimately, what the thing that helped him out that day was, was the fact that he had something better than a sling, and he had something better than a strategy. He had the Lord, the God of Israel, on his side. And if God be on your side, you will be amazed at the things that you will accomplish with him. Let's go back to that verse that I said we'd circle back to. This is 1 Samuel 17, 29, and it says this. What have I done now? Again, talking to his brothers, right? Is there not a cause? Is there, is there not a word from God? The better translation would literally be, is there not a word? And what he's asking for, is there not a word that, that, that's been spoken? This is what he's literally asking for. Remember when I, when I spoke at the very beginning of this thing and I said um, that Samuel was the guy that anointed David king, the reason that David was the next king is because Samuel didn't obey God's word. Or sorry, Saul did not obey God's word. Saul was disobedient to the word of God, and therefore he was removed as king, at least figuratively speaking, and there had to be another king put in his place. And so literally, this is, so again, Samuel is this guy that hears the word of God. And so what David is asking for is like, where's Samuel? Where's the person who speaks the word of God? And what you should know is that back in these days, before men went out to battle and before they went to do great things, um, Israelites, they would consult a prophet. They would consult a person who knew the word of God and they would say, should we go fight? Should, should we fight? By the way, before you do big things in life, it's probably good to consult God and consult God's word. And, and so that's what they would do. And they would say, should we go do this? Is there victory for us if we do this? Or is this a losing battle? And so when David says, is there not a word from God? He's saying, why haven't you guys called Samuel yet to get the word of God? And then when David finally steps out on the battlefield, it's obvious that what he's saying in a sense is this, is that the word of God's been given to me as the next king of Israel. And so I'm gonna step out on faith in that word. If you truly wanna achieve great things in life, you can do so. You can do so by the power of of the word of God. Let me just share a couple of things for you before I really get into this. But, but the one thing that I want to just say to you, because I know in my own heart, um, I, 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 there's a bit of a skeptic and a cynic inside of me, and I try to fight against that. But some of you may be asking yourself today, read, the Bible, that ancient book, that thing filled with, with inaccuracies and scientific incredulities, and I don't know if I can believe that thing. By the way, I should mention to you that I don't have time to go in it completely today, but even, maybe you can buy this, even if you don't buy in the full authenticity and the reliability and the testedness of the scripture, maybe you can just buy into this. Don't treat it like it's the word of God. Treat it like it's just something good to live by, and you watch the power and the impact it has in your life. Just do that. Let's not, let's not let, we'll tackle the belief thing as, as it comes, but just try the word of God. Try it and see what happens. But I should mention also, as a side note, that one of the most famous skeptics of the Bible, a guy named Bart Ehrman, 
He said this of the scripture when he was on a, 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 a show, a podcast of some type. Um, he said this. He said, uh, the, the host said it was trying to rail against Christians, and he said this. Um, well, we all know that Jesus is just a fairy tale, and we know that Jesus never truly existed. And Bart Ehrman, an atheist skeptic who has written book after book after book, uh, trying to discredit the New Testament, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, now, that's not necessarily true. And then the host tried to recant a little bit and said, well, you know what I'm saying about these Christians and the way they believe. And, he stepped, and Bart Ehrman doubled down. And he said, well, what you're saying is not true. Almost every single person who has studied the New Testament, whether they be atheist, agnostic, or Christian, or anything else, will concur across the board today that, that the Bible account of Jesus is, is, is accurate, that, that Jesus did exist, and that Jesus is a historical figure. And by the way, you should know there is almost no person on the planet who is a historian that is worth their salt in their, in their realm, or a person who is any type of theologian or Bible scholar or Bible studier who will tell you that they don't think Jesus existed, because there's too much evidence to the contrary. You can't take that position anymore. Jesus existed. So, so we could go on and on and on and try to give some evidence for the scripture, but I just want you to hear what the Bible says of itself. And then I want you to try it out. And here's what it says. And this is uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful. You ever go to church and, and after you've left, you just feel more alive? I hope you do that this morning. We really hope that that's the kind of church we're creating for each and every one of you. But if you want to know why that feeling is, well, you feel better just having gone to church. Or maybe you're out of church for a long while. Maybe you're sick or, or maybe something happens, your car breaks down, and then you just feel this like, ugh, inside. But then you finally go back to church and you're just like, bing, and you feel alive. The reason is, is because when you hear the word of God, the word of God is living and it's powerful and it has an effect inside of the hearts of people. Isn't that awesome? Ephesians 6, 17 says this. It says, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, the word of God is something you can fight with too. The word of God will keep you from being a victim. You dealing with anything in your life right now? I just want to challenge you, whether you even believe it or not, take open a Bible. Maybe you need to take open a Google search, and you just need to look for encouraging scriptures in the Bible. And maybe you're dealing with something specifically. Maybe it's, maybe it's an unbelieving spouse. Maybe it's difficulty in your marriage. Go to the Bible, do a Google search, and just look up encouraging scriptures that have to do with the subject you're dealing with. And you tell me if you come out of that moment feeling like a victim anymore after you read the Bible. Seek and you shall find. Ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. When you start to read the promises of God in God's word, it doesn't make you feel like a victim anymore of your circumstance. It makes you feel like a victor. Nay, I am more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, I'm preaching better than your amen in right now. That's what happens because the, the word of God is like a sword. It, it helps you fight against the, the affairs of this life. And the things that weigh against you. It says this, that, that Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you need to lift in your faith? Do you, do you need to believe God for something? Come listen to his word. It'll elevate your faith to the next level. Luke 8, 21, it says this. He says, my brothers and my sisters um, and are those who hear the word of God and do it. So you want to be close to Jesus? And Jesus said this. 
the people who are closest to me are the ones who take hold of my word. They hear it, and then they do it. It will provide a sense of closeness with Christ like your family with him when you start living according to the word of God. Not just listen to it, but do it. And now here's the most important one, and probably the one that I wanted to get to and the one I was itching to get to most of all. Because somebody here today needs to hear this. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, these words of mine, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock or a solid foundation. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock, the word. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house. And you know what happened to that house that wasn't built upon my word? Great was its fall. You don't have to totally believe what I'm saying. I'm going to assume most of you do. And that we're around a company of people who trust the word of God and believe the word of God. But for those of you who may even have questions about whether the word of God is authentic or not, hear this. Life happens to us all. Difficulties will come. The rain, as it says in this scripture verse, the rain will come. And it will beat against the house of every single person, whether you're a Christian, atheist, or agnostic. It doesn't matter. Difficulties will come to each and every one of us. That, that, that beat against our house. And the difference between the people who will be able to stand and actually be victorious, just like David was when he was fighting a Goliath, are those who have built their house upon the word of God. I'm just going to tell you, it may not be as encouraging as you'd like this morning. Difficulties will come in marriage. Difficulties will come with kids. Can I get an amen? Difficulties come as a part of being in this life. It's just the reality uh, of what it is. But the encouraging thing is this, is that if you build your house upon the word of God, you don't have to be worried about the difficulties. See, most people, they, they find difficulty in life and they think it's reason to, to bail out on God. Oh, well, this happened to me and I'm, so I'm leaving God. But the reality is, is that, quite frankly, those things happen to Christians and non-Christians. The only thing that happens when you bail out on God in those moments is now you're dealing with it by yourself. So that's, that's the, the only thing that happens. It doesn't help you to bail out on God in those moments. What would help you is to grab a hold of a solid rock that won't be shaken no matter how much the world around you is shaken. Boy, I can't think of anything that we need more in this society where it seems like just the fabric of our society is tearing apart at the seams. At least the news media wants you to believe that. I can't think of anything that we need to build our house on more so than the word of God in this hour, in this day and age, so that we can have something that will last. Whether that's a sick child, whether that's a dying loved one, whether that's financial difficulty, marital relationships that are cracking apart. Hear my heart on this. Is that if you grab a hold of his word, it will be a firm foundation no matter what's going on in your life. It can sustain you through the storm. And I just want to share this last thing because I think it's really, really apropos. 
One of my favorite guys in history is a guy named Martin Luther, and he came at a time when the Catholic Church was extremely corrupt. Um, they owned one-third of all the land, period, uh, and they had a belief that they, uh, the Pope was the actual heir apparent as the Roman emperor to the kingdom of the world, um, and they were a very, very powerful institution. Um, and if you know the story of Martin Luther at any, in any way whatsoever, he started railing against the things that he saw as, in, as corrupt and inaccurate with the scripture. And so he's about to go stand before a council and give an attestation for the things that, that he believes and for the things that um, he has written about. And he wrote, by the way, a 95 thesis, 95 theses that he thinks are wrong with what's going on in the church today. One of them was that people don't have the ability to read the word of God themselves. It's only the, the priest who has the ability to do it. And he believed in the priesthood of all believers, that we're all called to read the word of God. And so he nails this to the church in a, in a place called Wittenberg. And he gets in trouble for it, and they bring him before. So this is one man against the world, the most powerful religious institution, probably of all time. It's one man against the world, and he has to give an account for the things that he's spoken. So the very first time, he comes before the council, and he says, please just give me one more day. And they hum, and they ha, and they all that stuff, and they finally say, all right, you have one more day. And so... He didn't know how to respond. He sat, he prayed, he spoke with other counselors and advisors, and the next day he has to come and he has to speak before this council. And they say, speak plainly. Tell us what you think about these writings and these things that you're saying about the Catholic Church. And this is what he says. Since your majesties and your lordship require of me a simple reply, I will give you one. Now listen to this. It is this. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason I cannot submit to the Pope or to this council, for it is clear that they have fallen into error and contradicted themselves on multiple occasions. And then he says this, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract to anything that I've said, for it is neither safe or honest for a Christian to go against their conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. I thought about, I didn't want to offend anybody, but I thought about taking a Bible this morning and throwing it on the ground and saying, you know what I think about that book? And then putting both of my feet on it and saying, I think you can stand on that word. I believe it. Martin Luther did too. And because of it, he changed the Christian world as we know it. He changed the world. Whether you agree with anything he believed or not, it's undoubted that he changed the world. One man standing upon the word of God changed the world as we know it. And all I can say to you is this, is that I pray that you, like David, are able to stand before the giants of your life with something stronger and bigger and greater and better than yourself. And I think the word of God has stood the test of time, stood countless critics, stood countless historians who have tried to discredit it and have still not been able to do so. It is powerful enough to help you with whatever you're dealing with in this life. So brothers and sisters, don't make the mistake of just calling it a fairy tale. 
Don't even make the mistake of saying it's just a good book. Don't make the mistake of just calling it great ancient scripture. Don't make the mistake of just calling it an antiquated story. But uphold it as a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your path. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. For more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our channel for past episodes. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating or even sharing it with friends. That would mean so much to us. For more content from Soma Church or to connect with us, go to soma-church.com. We love you and we can't wait to meet you.